Since the creation, the Holy Spirit hovered. Since the time of Moses, there was power. Since the time of Jesus, there was power. Since the time of the apostles, there was power, and it transformed cities, nations, and the world. But today, some Christians believe these spiritual gifts have ceased. But have they ceased? Some believe the spiritual gifts continue today. But do they? Has God retracted His gifts, or is He only getting started? What does Scripture say? This is testing cessationism. The gift of healing, the gift of prophecy, words of knowledge. Words of wisdom, the gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of interpreting tongues, the gift of miracles, the gift of faith, the gift of discerning spirits. These spiritual gifts are believed by some Christians to even be continuing today, and theologians have called this group of Christians continuationists. But there is another group of Christians. Who theologians have called cessationists, who hold the belief that these supernatural, miraculous spiritual gifts that we find in the life of Jesus and his apostles have ceased with the death of the apostles or the closing of the canon when Scripture was written down. For the past few weeks, I've been studying and watching hours of cases being made for cessationism. In order to understand all of the popular arguments that are used and put forth for this theology, and I have gone to compare all of this to the pure reading of Scripture, so that I can present to you this day A to Z, as far as I could, all the considerations that you need to take into account regarding this topic. When you are finished with this teaching, you will be allowed to consider, think, pray. And most of all, do introspection regarding your own life with Christ to see where you stand regarding this topic. Why is this topic important? It is either extremely important or an extreme distraction. If spiritual gifts are indeed for today, they are a commandment of Christ for us, and we ought to be obedient to that. We ought to desire the gifts and not reject the gifts because that would be like rejecting the giver of the gifts. But at the same time, we also want to should ask ourselves: Wouldn't we want to partake in these spiritual gifts and have them as part of our lives if they indeed are for our lives today? But if, on the other hand, cessationism is true and these spiritual gifts are not for us today anymore, will they not simply serve? As a distraction, will they not be something that we waste our time in pursuing if they are not even for us to begin with? So, for this reason, this topic is very important. 
but it is not salvific. This is not a topic where even when we disagree, that does not mean we are no longer brothers and sisters. Before we begin, I'd like to give you two disclaimers as we head into this extensive study. First off, while these theological labels to be a cessationist or continuationist do help us draw distinction, they have also allowed both groups to draw up straw men regarding the other's beliefs. We, for example, see sometimes that certain cessationists see all continuationists as televangelists, busy with strange fire, hungry for money and after false miracles. And we, we have certain continuationists who look at cessationists as being people who, who lack the Holy Spirit, who do not desire the Holy Spirit, who want to do away with the Holy Spirit. But this would be unfair to each group because if you listen to people who believe whatever they do, you will find a range of beliefs in each group. You'll find people who are on extremist ends of it and you will find people who are closer to each other than they even actually realize. I say all this because inevitably we're going to be discussing both extremes and more balanced sides of these discussions. But by no means are we trying to paint everyone with the same brush. The second thing that I would like to bring up is that even though this is not a complicated subject, it is a controversial one. It's a subject that is laden with emotions and experiences. Some people have experienced miracles. Some people have experienced their spiritual gifts. Some people have not experienced any miracles or any spiritual gifts in any of their circles ever. And some people have experienced bad, traumatic things regarding spiritual gifts. But the question is, is in light of all of these high emotions and experiences that we all have, how will we judge what is true? Because while our experiences are indeed valuable, they at the same time can cloud our judgment. We need to go into this teaching to, and make a commitment with ourselves to say that I will judge my emotions and my experiences based on what Scripture says. I will not judge Scripture based on what I feel or what, but based on my experiences. So be aware of your emotions and confront them with the scriptures that we will be discussing in this video. So let's define each term more precisely. Cessationism is not the belief that the Holy Spirit has ceased his work or that the Holy Spirit cannot do miracles today. Rather, it is specifically that the Holy Spirit no longer distributes the spiritual gifts laid out in the book of Corinthians to believers and that they were there during a certain period illustrated in Jesus himself. We see that in the apostles, they operated. And as the apostles passed, they passed with the apostles. This is why many cessationists would even call these apostolic gifts. Continuationists, on the other hand, consider that the Holy Spirit still distributes these gifts as he wills upon a person today. 
We, he also, that person would also typically believe that this, these gifts would at least operate in a similar way to how they operated in the first century or as we read in the book of Acts. And the period by which the spiritual gifts are operating in, they believe it was illustrated in Jesus like cessationists. They believe that it was in the apostles like the cessationists do believe, but they do believe now that they continue to this day and did not cease with the death of the apostles or the closing of the canon. And they therefore do not even consider them mere apostolic gifts, but gifts accessible to believers at large. In the first section of this teaching, we would like to discuss claims made by cessationists regarding the purpose of spiritual gifts. Many cessationists believe that the spiritual gifts actually had a purpose to create the canon of Scripture as we have it today, to write down the revelations that we see in our New Testaments by empowering each agent of revelation or author of Scripture with a spiritual gift that would allow them to to receive and write down these revelations that we are reading today. Secondly, they believe that these authors of Scripture were given credibility by these spiritual gifts as they went ahead and performed these miraculous signs. And of course, many cessationists then conclude that many of the modern spiritual gifts that we see today are not actually the real thing and actually can come in competition with actual scripture. Many would actually argue, why do we need a gift of prophecy today since we have the Bible and the Bible is enough? We will be testing all of these thoughts in this first section, along with the end of the office of prophet and end of the office of apostle and whether there is scriptural merit to that. In the second section of this teaching, we will be looking at testing the resemblances of the first century spiritual gifts to modern day spiritual gifts in their practice. We will also be looking at the cessationist claim that miracles should only be allowed to be performed by God through credible theologians. Then we will also be looking at abuse within spiritual gifts, and then we will give our concluding thoughts on this matter. So get ready. Let's get into it. First, let's evaluate the claim regarding that spiritual gifts were given by God to create the biblical canon. And since the biblical canon is now arrived and has been closed, we all agree on what scripture is, what the Bible is. Now the spiritual gifts no longer serve a purpose and a role. We see the main argument is made for this position in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is the most popular go-to verse for cessationists to support their position. And this is also known as the love chapter. We read, starting in verse 7, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. 
But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's something that all of us can agree on. And that is that love will never cease. Love will never end. Love is the foundation of our faith. Amen. But there is something that will cease. And Paul is right. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, as we know it today, will cease. The question is, has it ceased? When will it cease? Because the scriptures say, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The big question to understand this chapter is for us to determine what is the perfect and when does it come? Cessationists have various opinions on these matters, but it comes down to three viewpoints. A group of cessationists actually believe we shouldn't be using this chapter at all to prove cessationism because it is not a good chapter to use and is not relevant to the discussion. But many other cessationists take the position that the perfect that has to come in order for the partial to pass away is the Bible itself. And the third group of cessationists believe that the perfect represents our church maturity and that our church maturity comes about when we receive the scriptures, the Bible, when the canon is closed which is very similar to the second argument. And so then the argument follows that, well, since we, if the Bible is the perfect and the perfect has arrived indeed, then the partial, the spiritual gifts have indeed ceased. Because of course, if we have the scriptures, the spiritual gifts have now fulfilled their role to bring those scriptures about through empowering these authors that wrote them. Let's think about this a little deeper. Why would the gift of tongues, prophecy, or words of knowledge not be needed alongside the scriptures that we have today? Because while indeed they did in fact aid in the writing down and the giving of the scriptures as we have them today, they did play a role in those authors, those apostles who wrote them. Their purposes are way more vast than simply that, according to the scriptures themselves. We read, for example, regarding prophecy, Paul explains and says in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, if all prophesy an unbeliever and outsider enters, he is convicted by all, called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. We see here that the gift of prophecy is actually a gift that allows us to reach the hearts of unbelievers for them to realize that God is real and is among us. This has nothing to do with writing down scripture or making even a prophecy, making it into scripture itself. Regarding words of knowledge, right? we see that Yeshua, Jesus, that the woman at the well, this Samaritan woman, He's there and he gives her a word of knowledge about her husbands that she's had. And this changes her life so much that she becomes the first evangelist to the Samaritans. But now, 
This has had nothing to do with the writing of scripture itself. Or what about the gift of tongues? Paul writes that the one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself for no one understands him. We see that personal edification is actually a part of at least this specific speaking in tongues that he is describing in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 4. But notice how all of these gifts will actually one day be irrelevant. No Samaritan woman will need to see a word of knowledge delivered to her in order for her to come to God because, well, when we are actually with God face to face after the resurrection, when we are with him in his presence, there will not be unbelievers. All will know. So therefore, no unbeliever will be convicted when there is prophecy given in an assembly. And there will be no need to build ourselves up with the gift of tongues because, well, we will be face to face. But what do we do if the cessationists claim that the Bible is the perfect in 1 Corinthians 13? Well, think about this for a second. If Paul describes these spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13 as being things that are in part, and they were the very things used to help us formulate, write the Bible as the agents of revelation, those authors of the Bible were empowered by them to write it. That means that the Bible was actually created with spiritual gifts that are in part. And that is true. The knowledge contained in the Bible that we have, even though it is in of itself without fault, it is not complete in that it does not give us the face-to-face full knowledge of our Father. In the same way that I can read a lot about someone, but until I'm face-to-face in their presence with them, it's a whole nother story. And I want to submit to you that because these spiritual gifts are in part and they were used to create the Bible, the Bible then must be in part two if we want to follow the argument of cessationism. But what is the perfect then itself? It is in our resurrected state when we put off the perishable and become imperishable. In fact, we read in the book of 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Believers will one day actually be like Yeshua. But that is not yet. The church has not reached that full maturity yet. But we will when we are in his presence. But see, that is in the future. And that I want to submit to you is when we will no longer need the spiritual gifts, like the gift of healing, because of course, we'll all be healed. We all know, we all have the knowledge. We don't need prophecy or words of knowledge or tongues. But as for now, what does it leave for us regarding this discussion? It's too soon to make any kind of a judgment. This is actually one of the um, lesser arguments in cessationism. So let's look at some more difficult ones next. The second claim of cessationism that we will be testing here today is that miracles historically 
have been periodic. For example, we see that God comes to certain people and prophets in the Bible and he equips them with miracle working power or spiritual gifts of some nature in order to give them credibility among the people so that they can carry out the work of the Lord. We see, for example, Moses is empowered in order to set Israel free from Egypt. We then have after Moses, hundreds of years go by, but then we have the prophets Elisha and Elijah who are empowered again by the Holy Spirit. But then we have hundreds of years go by yet again where there are no miracles, it seems. And then we have Christ, Jesus, come along, the Messiah, and of course he is clothed in power yet again. And so the argument follows that just as historically we have had these periods of the miraculous and spiritual gifts happening, followed by gaps where there was a ceasing of them, now we yet again, after the apostles were empowered last, are in a gap again where there has been a cessation of miracles or spiritual gifts yet again. It would be good to point out at this point that some cessationists actually do believe in miracles today. They just don't believe in spiritual gifts being for today. But when we are talking about miracles, we are talking about miracles that come about because of spiritual giftings. Moses was empowered by giftings that were spiritual uh, in order to do the miracles he did, specifically the gift of miracles. Now, regarding this, we have to remember that the very promise of the new covenant itself was that there was going to be an incredible change regarding this very thing. Because remember in Acts chapter 2, when Peter got up and explained what had just happened when the Holy Spirit was poured out and people spoke in tongues, a spiritual gift, he got up and said the following, In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, young men see visions, and old men dream dreams. I want to point out something that Peter did here that I think is quite profound. Before he quotes the prophecy of Joel, he says, In the last days, it shall be. And then he continues to give the prophecy. He actually specifies a period to this prophecy that we have never had before. And he says that this period where people will be, will be dreaming dreams, prophesying, and having visions, and these will be all flesh, young men, old men, daughters, everyone alike, And he's saying, look, this is for the last days. My question to you today, listening to me is, do you think we are in the last days? Is it that Peter was in the last days when he was saying this, but no longer is it the last days? And so these things are no longer relevant, that the prophecy of Joel was for them, but not for us anymore. Or is it that he actually added this period in the last days to solidify the period 
of these spiritual gifts that were occurring in that very moment. That is the reason he got up to explain what was going on when people started exercising a spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. In light of this, I think whether historically there were times when spiritual gifts or miracles were not as frequent as in other times should not have any bearing on what is happening today for us. We cannot judge it based off that history because part of this new covenant is that things will be different in this aspect precisely. The next claim by cessationism that we'd like to discuss is one I briefly mentioned before, and it is that the spiritual gifts were given to bring credibility to a person. For example, we discussed Moses who wrote the Torah. We looked at, for example, the apostles who wrote much of our New Testaments, right? We consider that these people were made credible by the signs and wonders and spiritual gifts that they were clothed in by the Holy Spirit. This definitely confirmed them as being authoritative authors of scripture or agents of revelation. And that, in fact, did play a role. The claim by cessationists are that since the scriptures have now been written and the canon is closed, that there is no more need for anyone to be made credible as an agent of revelation, and therefore there is no more need for spiritual gifts since that was their exclusive purpose. Let's test this. First, we do see this fact. We see, for example, how Moses is spoken to by God and in the book of Exodus chapter 7, 1, and, and God tells him, I will make you as God to Pharaoh. We see regarding Jesus in John 5, 36, he says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. We also read regarding the apostles in Hebrews 2 verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I think we can all agree that these signs and wonders and spiritual gifts did bring credibility to these men of God that he chose to use as agents of revelation to give us the scriptures that we have today. And so in the world of cessationism, this premise that this is the exclusive role of the spiritual gifts then makes way for a new type of argument that if we can prove that the office of the apostle has ceased, then therefore spiritual gifts have ceased since they are exclusive to the office of apostle who was those who wrote down or were the authors of scripture. We would see this, for example, in John MacArthur's popular book, Strange Fire, where a lot of time is devoted to proving the end of the office of apostle in order to prove the ceasing of the spiritual gifts, since they are seen to be directly connected. There are no more apostles and I think the argument is when you read the chapter and you see how how unique the apostles were and when they passed away, what finality that was, 
That defines cessationism. When you cease to have apostles, you cease to have the signs that were unique to the apostles. If it's valid to argue that the Bible is authenticated by miracles as agents of revelation, then obviously uh, the uh, sign gifts die with the death of the last apostle. If it is the case that spiritual gifts were exclusive to the apostles, then proving the end of the office of the apostle proves the end of spiritual gifts today. However, if spiritual gifts are not exclusive to the apostles, proving the end of the office of an apostle wouldn't matter since there would be no correlation between that and the ending of spiritual gifts. So before we talk about the office of apostle, let's talk about whether spiritual gifts are exclusive for that office. Let's look at some proof texts used by cessationists regarding this and let's test them. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, signs and wonders and mighty works. Acts 2 verse 43. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Acts 5 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Acts 14.3 So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Acts 15.12 And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Signs and wonders, as discussed, indeed did bring credibility and validation to the apostles. But was this spiritual gift that these apostles received exclusively for them? Or were the gifts for a wider audience? What about the church of Corinth itself? Because, of course, Paul writes exclusively to this church, instructing them to practice and how to practice spiritual gifts. We read, for example, regarding the order of a house meeting in 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, for all things should be done decently in order. Ordinary believers in the church of Corinth were certainly not agents of revelation responsible for writing any type of scripture, yet they were instructed in searching, pursuing spiritual gifts and instructed on how to practice them. This is further confirmed by Paul later in 1 Corinthians 12, 6, when he says, There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And he continues to describe each of the spiritual gifts. We see that spiritual gifts are taught to people outside of the office of an apostle. We also see Paul write regarding spiritual gifts, making a distinction between them and the office of an apostle itself directly. 
And he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. This makes sense of Acts 2.17, which we read earlier, where the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, everyone who believes. And he lists, for example, the gift of miracles, the gift of healing, as an entirely separate office from the office of an apostle. So while an office of an apostle can practice these gifts, these gifts can also be in distinction from that office. Okay, that's the church of Corinth. But what about other churches? We see in the church of Galatia the same thing. Paul writes in Galatians 3.5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Apart from Paul's presence, we see that miracles were regularly occurring in the church of Galatia. Next, let's look at more examples regarding people who were non-apostles yet operated in these miraculous spiritual gifts. We see, for example, Stephen in Acts 6 verse 8, where we read, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. We read regarding Philip, who was not an apostle as well, in Acts 8 verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Philip was most certainly not an apostle, so much so that after this occurred, he actually had Peter and John come down, as they heard, to lay this foundation within Samaria. So since Philip was not an apostle, but yet healed lame men from their infirmity by the gift of healing, what is he doing? Is that not a spiritual gift being exercised? Another example is the prophet Agabus, who visits Philip's house and prophesies over Paul. And we also read about Philip's daughters who were prophets. Yet their words are not recorded in Scripture, and yet they are not authors, agents of revelation themselves. We will discuss this account more later, but it's worth bringing up. We also see in the book of Luke, 72 elders who were not apostles sent out to do spiritual giftings. We read in Luke 10, 1, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. The 72 elders were given a supernatural, special anointing with the gift of healing to accomplish this task. Many cessationists consider the gift of healing as a spiritual gift in modern times as having ceased completely. But yet, here in this account, 
we see that these were both non-apostles who were practicing this gift of healing. And these 72 elders had no responsibility to be needing to get, get credibility in order for them to become agents of revelation to write scripture, since they never wrote scripture. Let's look at another example in Mark 16, verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who will leave. In my name, they will cast out demons, speak in new tongues, pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. This chapter is considered strange by many and for good reason. I mean, it would be fair for you to ask, well, you know, does that mean if spiritual gifts are for today, we need to be picking up serpents and drinking deadly poison? No, because of course, all the gifts and anointings that God gives his people are for certain opportunities. And so this is simply in reference to when there is an opportunity for picking up serpents. For example, Moses picked up a serpent because that was his demonstration of power to Pharaoh. And so if we are poisoned, God is saying, you drink it, it will not hurt you. And then this is listed among other spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues and healing the sick. And notice how this is said to be for believers, a sign of being a believer, not the sign of being an apostle. Yes, a sign of an apostle, but the sign of a believer as well. I do realize this this chapter in the book of Mark is often disputed by a minority of scholars. But we do see that it is repeated in concept in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. This scripture seems to be instructing believers to follow in the example of Yeshua, of Jesus himself, to heal the sick, cast out demons, and operate in the multitude of spiritual gifts that he did. Cessationists have two arguments against this premise for Matthew chapter 10. The first being that if we want to obey the second part, we need to obey the first, which tells us that this is for us to go to no Gentiles and no Samaritan, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And secondly, they argue that this was only given to the 12 disciples and not to all people. First off, if we want to consider that we should not look at this instruction because we ought to then also follow the beginning to not go to Gentiles with the gospel, then we need to consider something else here. Of course, Paul does tell us that the gospel is to the Jew first and then also for the Gentiles and the rest of the world. We also read, for example, in Matthew 24, verse 14, about this shift in focus. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and the end will come. We know that when Jesus came to tell us, enter no town of the Gentiles or Samaritans, that that is a temporary instruction because later 
further instruction was now given to say, now that we have gone to the Jews, now we will go to the whole world. But at the same time, we have to then ask, is the second part of the commandment also temporary as the first? Well, the second part of the commandment to go and heal the sick, to go and cast off demons, to go and raise the dead and cleanse lepers, has no temporary definition applied to it. Nowhere later does an author like Paul or Jesus or anyone else come and state, oh, actually, that was just for that time, that period, like he did for the earlier part of the instruction. The gift of healing was not announced to be temporary. In fact, the opposite was announced. Because Jesus said in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. We know that Jesus did healing as one of the primary parts of his ministry. So to exclude that as part of the works that he did would make no sense. But now let's go to the second part of this argument that I know you are actually waiting for. And that is that, well, isn't this a commandment in Matthew 10 given to the 12? And if we are not part of the 12 disciples, then they're not for us. This, of course, would play well into the argument that the spiritual gift ceased with the death of the last apostle and was just for the apostles. But, of course, as we have started to discuss in this teaching, it wouldn't make sense because why is it that not only the apostles were then instructed in the gifts and how to exercise them. Why does Paul spend letters upon letters explaining to the church of Corinth, for example, the correct protocol on how to deal with the spiritual gifts, what to do and what not to do regarding them? You see, if the spiritual gifts were exclusively for the apostles, why waste this time teaching correct spiritual gift protocol to others? And if the spiritual gifts were as temporary as the 12 apostles were, then why waste this ink writing it down into letters, God actually going and preserving these letters in the Bible as we have today for us to read 2,000 years later, but they are actually irrelevant to us. Like we are arguing then that we need to get rid of the whole chapter where Paul details spiritual gifts and how we ought to prophesy and not prophesy and speak in tongues and not speak in tongues. Why would God do things that way if it was for the apostles and not for us? So in light of this scriptural evidence, I think it is clear that the spiritual gifts are not restricted or exclusive for the office of an apostle. But this then brings about a question. What is the purpose of these spiritual gifts? In short, there are a few. Spiritual gifts are for the common good. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. God just wants to have people healed for the common good. God wants to guide people to him through a word of prophecy for the common good. He wants to reach that Samaritan woman's heart. He wants to heal her heart 
And he did so through a spiritual gift, through Yeshua, for example. Another reason is to simply become a witness of God's goodness. Not just a common good. Not just because God wants us well and healed. But he also wants his name to be glorified. To show his glory and his goodness that has come about because of our healing because all that he does for us and through us through spiritual gifts points back to his glory another reason and purpose is to bring credibility to those who are laboring in the gospel for example you know when we look at the people who got healed in the new testament by the uh, disciples or by philip when he was in samaria right this brought a awe upon the people And they wanted to hear the gospel. And let me ask you this. Isn't it true that the world, if spiritual gifts are for today, if continuationism is true, isn't it something that actually is needed in this world? Because we have a lot of knowledge and intellectualism going around. But isn't it true that just like in the Bible, Today, people do need a touch from God, a supernatural encounter by the power of the Holy Spirit that would ultimately lead them to pursue the truth in their lives. Don't we need to show the world he has sent us that we are his agents to proclaim the message and that his good message is good because he does care for them, because he does heal them. And the last thing I want to bring up is that Paul wrote that our faith itself is not only to be resting in the words of people. He says that when he came to us, he did not come with with testimony of God or just lofty speech of wisdom. But he says in 1 Corinthians 2.4, My speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul actually says that the testimony that has come about by our wisdom, the ways we can communicate the gospel, the preaching we can have, which is all amazing and part of our giftings that God gives us. He says it's not enough and it's not what he leaned on. Instead, he leaned on demonstration of the spirit so that the people who saw would put their faith in God and not just in how lofty or how wise his speech sounded. Therefore, we don't need to be in some kind of a rush to attempt to abolish the office of an apostle in order to prove that spiritual gifts have ceased. Because as we have now proven and discovered that these aren't correlated, spiritual gifts can be manifested in people who do not hold the office of an apostle. So let's take a step back and let's evaluate whether the office of an apostle is still actually for today. And I think it is a very relevant discussion in light of the spiritual gifts and the different parts of the body and the different giftings within the body of Christ. Many cessationists hold the view that the office of apostle have ceased. And this is usually based upon three qualifications that they have put forth that qualifies as someone to be in an office of apostle. They considered that the only true apostles were the original 12 
disciples, not Judas, because he was replaced. And the reason that this is applied is they look at the following qualifications. The claims are that an apostle must have personally witnessed the resurrection of Christ, that he must be appointed by Christ himself, and that he must do miracles. Regarding the qualification that an apostle must have personally witnessed the resurrection, the following proof text is often given. Acts 1 verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. This scripture is given in context of how the disciples are attempting to choose a replacement for one of the twelve because Judas fell away as the betrayer. So we see that this qualification to be a witness of the resurrection is actually a requirement in order to become one of the twelve not in order to enter the office of an apostle. There is actually a difference. The twelve who God has chosen has a special honor in his kingdom. We see this, for example, in the book of Revelation 21.14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. You also read in Matthew 19, 28, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Paul actually makes reference to the twelve, and he speaks regarding them, calling them super apostles. And he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 5, Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. This word, super apostles, in the Greek is leon, and it, it can mean the chiefest or the greatest among them. In other words, he is saying that there are, are chief apostles, that there are people who are higher that they are, there is a hierarchy of apostles, and the twelve he considers as the chief, the top apostles. But what is the office of an apostle? While the twelve certainly were within the office of an apostle, not everyone in the office of an apostle is the twelve. Paul himself is a good example of this. He is not part of the twelve as we see in scripture. But he himself considers himself, as he said, an apostle. He also has never personally witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Paul did witness a vision of Christ, but it was not the same as how the twelve witnessed the resurrection. But yet we do call Paul an apostle. And Paul lays out and what the apostle is as being a role within God's church in the ecclesia. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God appointed apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. 
an apostle is an office among all of the other offices and roles in the church. And today, if you want to think about in modern terms what an apostle would be, this would be someone very much like, well, Paul himself was. Someone who went around into regions and planted churches and made disciples there, raising up leaders beneath him. And these apostles oversee spiritual regions. This explanation was more involved, but the next two are more simple. The second requirement that is communicated by many cessationists in order for someone to enter the office of an apostle is that they must be appointed by Christ. And the proof text uses Acts 1-2. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We know that throughout the story of Yeshua, you know, Jesus goes around and picks these men that become the twelve. So we know that, of course, God picks people for a certain position and calling. And this is true of all of the offices and all of the giftings and all of our callings. And it is something that can still happen today. God still is picking people by divine revelation through dreams and visions and whichever way he desires. He, the laying on of hands by prophets and elders and so forth and so forth, God raises leaders. So for us to state, you know, that no one can be an apostle today because Christ needs to appoint them and Christ is not in the flesh to appoint them would miss the point of the fact that God has sent the Holy Spirit that still continues that work today. The last qualification that is given as being needed for someone to enter the office of an apostle is that they need to do miracles. Uh, We already discussed this, but in Matthew 10 verse 1, the proof text is given as being, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast him out to heal every disease and every affliction. Initially, it is true that Yeshua gave these 12 the initial authority to do these things. However, those disciples made disciples and those disciples made disciples. And so when we read the book of Corinthians or Galatians or throughout the book of Acts, we see all of these people that we've already discussed who are now disciples of those initial 12 who are walking in the same footsteps and doing the same works and spiritual gifts that they did. If we wanted to say that an apostle needs to do miracles, well, that is not something that is out of reach, at least for those in the first century. Whether it is out of reach for us today, we're still unpacking and discovering. But let's continue and see whether that is true. This brings us to our next subject, and that is the ending of the office of a prophet, as believed by many cessationists as well as well as the gift of prophecy and the problem of new revelation that is oftentimes a dialogue within cessationism. Firstly, the office of a prophet and its ceasing has come about primarily because of a verse in the book of Ephesians 2 verse 20, where we read, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
Many cessationists argue that because the foundation of the church has now been laid by these apostles and prophets, and because these apostles and prophets, you know, finished the writings of the scripture that we now have in the canon today, that their wall is now finished, that those offices have ceased. Is that true? We do see something interesting within the scriptures that I'd like to submit to you, that not all prophets have their words and their prophecies be words that actually make it to scripture, even if they are from God, that not all prophets basically are authors of scripture itself. We also see that not all of the prophets in that way was to quote unquote lay the foundation of the church in the ways we may think of certain like John the Baptist being a prophet that helped lay the foundation or prepare the way. Let's look at some biblical examples of these two facts. In Acts chapter 13, we read that there were active prophets in Antioch. We see now there were in the church at Antioch prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manet, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. The question is, is where are these prophecies that were made by these prophets of Antioch? And why aren't they in our Bibles? Why do we have a book in the Bible called the, the prophets of Antioch or, or something of that nature detailing their prophecies? Could it be that they had prophecies that were not to be intended, that did not have the purpose to be included in the canon? We read that Philip had daughters in Acts 21 verse 9 who were prophets. But where are their prophecies? Or what about Acts 21 verse 10 when the prophet Agabus actually comes and gives a prophecy to Paul? prophesying that if Paul was to go, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Notice how the prophet Agabus's prophecy was not about laying some biblical scriptural foundation for the church. It was also not about creating scripture, writing scripture, like adding to the New Testament writings of his prophecies. No, that prophecy, for example, was a personal prophecy for Paul himself to guide him on his mission trips, right? And, and so in the same way, I mean, I can even share personally that I have had a prophet when I was young, a young man at university. I had no idea of anything. I had a lady who was a prophet who I didn't know at the time was a prophet. And I was skeptical of such things, of course. But yet she came and without knowing me, just having met me, prophesied, saying that God calls you to full-time ministry, speaking a thus says the Lord over me. And, uh, you know, for a lot of us, that's like strange, you know. But even in the midst of my skepticism, years and years later, that word would become fully manifest and it actually played a big role in helping me discern that, yes, where I am heading is the will of the Lord because he has confirmed it multiple times, including through a prophet such as that. And we see that this is a method that God speaks to his people. We read, for example, in Acts 13, verse 2, while they, talking of the prophets of Antioch, 
were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. So we see that a role, a purpose of prophecy, among other purposes, is to be a personal prophecy or word for an individual like Paul received or like I personally received. But, you know, there's a good there's a good question that we can now ask, you know, regarding this. And that's like, if we're going to say, thus is the Lord, if there's a prophet who, who, who's been gifted in that and they speak, thus is the Lord, well, why don't we include that in Scripture? Like, if, if God is speaking through, like, if this is actually God's words, man, like, shouldn't they be included into God's words? Like, shouldn't we open up the canon and add them to the back of our Bibles? But see, we should then be asking that very same question to the Church of Corinth or, or any of those early church movements. Because, of course, they were practicing the gift of prophecy at, a, at an extremely high uh, level with multiple prophets in the church, where Paul even has to give instruction on one at a time, guys, because you don't want to have everyone speak at once. So there was definitely a lot happening regarding this gift in that church. But yet they never had a problem with thinking that this needs to now be included in a, a, a biblical canon of Scripture. No, because they were able to make, make a distinction between personal prophecies or prophecies for a church or prophecies for a nation or prophecies for a certain time, prophecies for a certain thing that weren't supposed to be prophecies for the world. Because there is a distinction of this that does exist within the gift of prophecy. And this brings us to a very popular cessationist argument, and that is the gift of prophecy in relation to new revelation. You know, if, if there is a gift of prophecy that God actually wants to use through people today indeed, then, well, isn't that going to be in competition to the word. I mean, isn't the Bible enough? Isn't the, the scriptures that we have that is absolutely most precious and holy, isn't that enough? Are we saying that they're not enough? If we say that there is an office of a prophet or that there is a gift of prophecy that is allowed to exist today? Because if you're saying God is still speaking through prophets, still speaking through apostles, then he's not finished speaking. So that I need my Bible and a prophet or prophets, my Bible and some apostles, that I don't have everything sufficient in the word of God. And so I need some miraculous gift to get me through, some miraculous word of knowledge, word of wisdom, some miraculous insight, some uh, divine experience some transcendent kind of thing, or I can't make it as a, as a Christian, I, I need that. Uh, that, that. That introduces an entirely out-of-control element to the closed canon of Scripture. And this brings us back to what we start discussing, because the gift of prophecy is, is a wide gift with many applications, speaking the heart of God to these, this audience. And it's allowing them to maybe even repent of sin because he's saying, repent and turn from your wicked ways. 
right? Or maybe it communicates a divine calling to them. Whatever it is, that's some of the purposes that we can see. But then ultimately, this audience we are speaking about are typically a narrow audience. They're typically a church, typically a nation, typically an individual, typically a group, typically a, maybe even a, a certain denomination, right? Or who knows? But the thing is, is that this is determined by the prophet because as the prophecy is given, God gives who this audience is that it is supposed to be delivered to. But then there are certain prophecies that are that are very different than all of that we that which we just discussed. Because when we look at the scriptures and we see the prophets within our Bibles and how they wrote regarding it, we see that they communicate through their prophecies things like the plan of salvation that God has in store for us, of how God wants to restore Israel back. Like things like communicating a standard of holiness and how they have fallen short and need to return to that. And the audience for the biblical prophecies are basically the world. Because no matter who you are, the prophecies that have been included in Scripture itself is to some extent relevant to all of us to prove to us the divinity of God, His power, and His glory. And so that's what makes a distinction. That is why some prophecies God chose to include for everyone in the world to read. And some prophecies, like that lady who prophesied over my life, is not for the whole world to read. Instead, it was for me in a certain moment in time. And so we see that a gift of prophecy in that manner never seeks to be in competition with the Word, the Scriptures, the Bible, because it has to fall in line with that. And it doesn't seek to add to that, right? And it doesn't seek to supersede. It doesn't seek to say it's not enough, that the the Scriptures isn't enough. But it serves a different role than the Scriptures itself. Because the Scriptures do speak to us all, don't get me wrong. But this is another dimension that God uses to speak to His people. And this is why he said in Acts 2, I am giving this way that I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to speak to you in visions. I'm going to speak to you in dreams. I'm going to speak to you in prophecies. And this is part of what the new covenant is. And if you think about it, just taking a step back, I mean, it would be natural for God to want to speak to us in a way that is not just restricted to the scriptures. I love the scriptures. I teach it every week of my life. But At the end of the day, we can expect that if we have a relationship with the Father who has come down, who when Yeshua has come down and and dwelled among us, he is sought to be with us closely. Then and then he goes and he sends the Holy Spirit to be with us closely. We could expect that he would desire to speak even through us to others or speak through others to us. That should not come as a surprise to his character. I want to submit to you that the scriptures actually allude that the gift of prophecy was a very normative, common gift within the early church. For example, we see how Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 6. He mentions the gift of prophecy amongst many other gifts that we today consider as an everyday common gift that we see all around us in the church. 
we see having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, if, if in the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, act, who has acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So all of these things we take for granted as, as being, yes, these are gifts in the body, praise God. But when it comes to prophecy, we set that one aside, even though God lists them alongside all of these other normative things. Of course, not all are to be in the office of a prophet or to even have the gift of prophecy. But yet, is no one to have the gift of prophecy? Is no one to be in the gift, the office of a prophet? That's a question we really need to ponder. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. If you have skepticism regarding this, I appreciate that. I understand that there can be skepticism for very good reason, because there has been a lot of abuse regarding the prophetic in many movements that you can even think about right now as I'm speaking. But I want to submit to you that this is not something new. This is not a symptom of simply uh, Western Christianity. It is something that is as old as the gift of prophecy itself. We read how the prophet Jeremiah writes about it in Jeremiah 23, verse 16. And he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. We see that this is an old issue of prophecy, where there are people who prophesy according to their own mind, their own thoughts, not from God, things that God never said, and they get it wrong, and they're exposed for it. But the question is, is because there are people who speak of their own mind, does that mean we do away with the gift of prophecy? Because Paul wrote specifically regarding it, and he said, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold on to what is good. In 1 Thessalonians 5.20. So Paul even recognized that sometimes there will be prophecies that will not be correct, but they need to be tested and we need to hold on to what is good. Not abandon the prophecies or despise prophecies because there are ones that aren't good, but hold on to those that are good. This is a big factor. Our experience is a big factor. And we can easily judge this whole topic based off our experiences. Welcome to section two. Here we're going to be discussing what are we to do with both our good or bad experiences. There are many things that we have witnessed regarding these gifts in the world today. Some of them crazy. Some of them just questionable, and some of them seem good. But ultimately, what are we to do? But first, I would like to tell you about an amazing story by a man called Augustine of Hippo. This is a very well-known theologian, uh, well-respected by many of the early reformers and admired for his views on salvation by faith. And he was also a cessationist. In fact, he believed in the miracles and spiritual gifts that revolved around the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, but he did not believe that they were for his day. 
anymore. He wrote in one of his writings titled On True Religion in 390 AD, Miracles were no longer permitted to continue in our time, lest the mind should always seek visible things, and the human race should be chilled by the customariness of the very things whose novelty had inspired them. Augustine, like many in his day, held this view based off his experiences. Because he did not see any of these spiritual gifts manifest in believers around him in his day, and so therefore he came to a conclusion that, well, they must not be for this day anymore. But then something happened to him, something miraculous, something that could probably only be explained as a move of God. I will let him speak for himself as he writes in his writing, City of God, a man who was healed of gout. Another was instantly cured of paralysis and a hernia. Evil spirits were driven out of others by prayer. A youth whose eye had been dislocated from its socket and severely damaged had his sight restored to perfect condition through the prayers of the believers. A child dying after being crushed by an ox-drawn cart was miraculously returned to consciousness, but showed no sign of the crushing he had suffered. The son of Augustine's neighbor died. Quote-unquote, the corpse was laid out, the funeral was arranged, everyone was grieving and sorrowing. A friend of the family anointed the body with oil. This was no sooner done than the boy came back to life. He writes, I realized how many miracles were occurring in our own day and which were so like the miracles of old and how wrong it would be to allow the memory of these marvels of divine power to perish from among our people. It is only two years ago that the keeping of records was begun here in Hippo and already at this writing we have nearly 70 attested miracles in his work titled Retractions in 427 AD, Augustine would later retract what he had said earlier regarding the cessation of these wonderful works. These miracles could not have happened without spiritual gifts of healing being among the body for people to be raised from dead or eyes to be healed that were out of socket and so forth and so forth. These were no small miracle or small thing. But consider how Augustine's position was, was determined by what he was seeing around him. And yet when what around him changed, his position shifted for good reason, of course. But I want to submit to you that there is a danger, a lesson for us in this that we need to consider. Could it be that we live in a time like Augustine lived before the city of God encounters were recorded and started happening around him, a time where it seemed as if things have ceased in his circles. Could it be that we could be living in a time like that where things seem like they have ceased, but the reality of what God actually desires to do by the movings of his spirit is very different from what we see with our fleshly eyes. What if it's not about walking by sight, but by faith and what the word says we ought to be able to see?
This is just a question I'd like to pose for you today as we head into this section of the teaching. Many cessationists would, cl- would claim that, well, this is different, right? These, these are simple miraculous events. We believe in miraculous events, but this is different from spiritual gifts. I want to submit to you that the miraculous and spiritual gifts are intricately linked and you cannot separate the two. That, that when you believe in the spiritual gifts and the continuation of them, you automatically will see the frequency of the miraculous increase because the spiritual gifts are miraculous by nature. And Augustine saw 70 miracles at least recorded, he said, in two years. Now, of course, it could be that the Father wants to move more powerfully this year than next year. I am I am absolutely convinced that he has a will, he has a desire, and he moves as he wills, and that is my desire for his desire and his will to be done. Amen to that. But it is quite logical that if we believe that he has ceased to do certain things, that our lack of faith will be a hamper to he having his full desire and movings of the Spirit among us. For it is written that when Yeshua was in a certain town, that he could do not many miracles among them because of their unbelief. So if we have unbelief, we shouldn't be surprised if God does not do as many miracles among us as he would have otherwise. Some sensationists would claim that the New Testament spiritual gifts bear no resemblance to modern spiritual gifts today, that, that it's, it's different and because it's not the same thing, because it is fake or a counterfeit or whatever. But ultimately, I want to submit to you that we cannot judge, firstly, whether the gifts have ceased based off whether we see them in the ways that we think they should be exercised or whether we see them at all. This is not an argument that we can make from our own experiences. I mean, just think about it. If there is no one righteous except for you on the earth, like it was with Noah, where there was no man righteous but Noah was righteous, will you still do the right thing if you know what God wants from you? Or will you say, because no one else does it, it must not be that I should? No, but Noah built the ark despite no one else thinking that he should. And that's what true faith is, is believing the word of God, regardless of what our experience in this world and what others think and what others do are. And ultimately, this is where we need to start with this. However, I am not against discussing these seeming inconsistencies. We don't have time in this teaching to go through every spiritual gift, of course. But I would like to speak about the gift of healing specifically, since it is perhaps the most evidential gift. It is one that people seem to seek evidence for among all of them most. We often hear things like, well, where's the evidence that someone got healed? Show me the medical records and so forth and so forth. And this is the claim that some cessationists have made, like John MacArthur himself. They state that the healings by Jesus and his disciples, and in the first century, were instantly not a process, infallibly without ever failing, 
permanently, in other words, the disease never returns, not shying away or struggling with harder cases, you know, more difficult, more serious diseases. And lastly, they were all verifiably. There was proof for them. Let's look at these claims. Scripture, thankfully, records many of these accounts of miracles for us that were done by the hands of the apostles and Jesus himself. And we are going to see if these miracles were always uh, instant, infallible, uh, permanent, and that there was never struggling with harder cases. Firstly, let's look at infallibility. We read in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, regarding such a case where the disciples attempted to heal someone. But were they infallible? Because, of course, the claim is made that they always were. Yet it says in verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Well, most of the records of healings in Scripture are when people did get healed. Of course, those are good reports that would be recorded. But God also included this account for our viewing today, so that we can see that it wasn't a 100% always successful kind of situation. But the disciples themselves struggled because of their own unbelief. Let's look at another example. Philippians 2.27 Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I have sorrow upon sorrow. Why was Paul worried about this brother who was almost near to death with an illness? Well, Paul had the gift of healing. Why didn't Paul just heal him? Well, of course, because that's not how it works. While the gift of healing allows people to get healed. Not everyone gets healed for a multitude of reasons we don't have time to get into today. So we see that the disciples did sometimes struggle. They weren't infallible in their gift of healing. And this ties into another point of, you know, some cases being harder and and some people shying away from harder illnesses and diseases, not, not exercising their gift on those. Now, we see that the disciples struggle to heal that certain person because of their unbelief. It was a difficult situation for them to confront that. And naturally, it would be difficult for all of us to pray for certain situations over others. We consider some things as a bigger miracle or a more difficult thing to accomplish because the limit is in our minds that we have set up. And so, What this tells us is that not that this automatically means that, well, you see, the gifts of today are not the same as as faith in the first century or gifts of healing in the first century. It simply means that just like there was a spiritual maturity that we need to grow into, there was that in the first century as well, that we grow in faith, that we grow in the gift of healing, that we grow and, and push ourselves to pray for the more difficult situations as we do grow. But this is not evidence that the gift itself has ceased or is different somehow. The next claim is that the gift of healing should always be instant as it was in the first century when they prayed. Let's look at an example of how Jesus prayed for someone and how instant 
the healing really was. We see in Mark 8.23, And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Was Jesus' faith inadequate somehow? Absolutely not. However, we do see that God sometimes has a purpose with the process. And he has a plan in the situations, and they differ from situation to situation. In this case, he prayed twice. The man got a partial, you can argue, healing, or he had a vision after the first prayer. Something happened, but he wasn't completely healed yet. And that caused Christ to lay his hands on him again for that full healing to come about. And so for someone today to pray more than once for someone to get completely fully healed would be in accordance to how Christ prayed, at least in one biblical account. And so just because people sometimes pray more than once doesn't mean that it's a different gift from the first century, because we do see there are instant healings today. I have witnessed them myself, but there are also times that I, like Christ, had to pray more than once for someone to be set free. The next claim is that the healings in the first century were always permanent, but yet today we have people who get healed and then the issue returns later, that's not the same as how it's supposed to be permanent. But was it always permanent in the first century? We see actually an account with Jesus praying for a man, but yet warning him that his healing might become temporary. We read in John 5.14, Afterwards Jesus found him, the man who was healed, in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. When someone gets healed, there is a responsibility for them to repent of their sins, lest something worse comes upon them, or lest their illness returns. Because if your illness was caused by a sin, which can in some instances happen, then if you continue in the sin despite a miraculous healing, it would just be normal to assume that that disease could return. And that's what Jesus warned about. So no, healing is never guaranteed to be permanent. In fact, we will all die. The gift of healing is not a tool of immortality. It is a sign in the current moment or a good act of faith from God towards a person, an act of kindness in a moment. And lastly, some cessationists claim that the gift of healing today is not verifiable like it was in the first century. I want to ask this question. When we think about the proof of the resurrection of Christ, we base it upon the evidence of historical witnesses. We understand that there were many people who died for this belief that Christ did rise from the dead. Many people who were willing to lose everything, including Paul, for that, including all the disciples. We believe that those witnesses are true. But yet, why is it that when we have millions of Christian witnesses all around the world who in modern times today stand before us and say that they were healed and it changed their life, 
that we say we cannot believe that. But we rather can believe the historical witnesses of 2,000 years ago who do not even live today anymore. Even though they should be believed, I want to submit to you that today's witnesses should also be believed if they say we have been healed and there are millions of them around the world. The reality is there is substantial evidence for healing miracles occurring in modern times. The question is, is do you want to be convinced of them? We hear voices like, where are all the medical records? Where show us the proof, show us the, we want to see it in that way, right? And I would respond to that initially the same way that Jesus responded in a similar sense in the account of Lazarus. If you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Luke 16, 31. Jesus is saying that if you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that is scripture, then you won't even believe if someone was to rise from the dead. And he did. And the same way I want to submit to you that if you do not even believe what the scripture says about the spiritual gifts, then even if someone was to raise from the dead, or even if I were to show you proof of a miracle today, that would not even convince you. You know, it is natural to be skeptical. However, we have to question that if we are believers and we state we that we believe in the Bible, yet we at the same time say we don't believe in spiritual gifts or the miraculous because we need to see evidence, what that tells me is that you don't actually believe in the Bible. And even if I showed you evidence, I don't believe that you will believe what I show you, no matter how convincing, because you've already been dishonest about your initial belief in the Bible. There's no real reason to even bring proof to the table if we can't start out with at least being honest about what we actually believe and whether we believe in the Bible or whether we actually don't. And let me just be very clear that I'm not against medical evidences or or anything of that nature, but I am skeptical of the heart of the inquirer if that is a believer who is inquiring. Because ultimately, Jesus said to them in John 20, 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I want to submit to you that the blessing that God has for those who believe the word above everything else is that they get to actually experience the word in their own lives. But the one who is skeptical of the word and all experience will be the one who does not experience it in the same way as those of faith. Historically, I want to submit to you that there is a source of criticism that has come against spiritual gifts that is one that has not really been considered. When we think about the Reformation itself that occurred, we think about this new movement that divorced from the grips of the Catholic Church. What many people don't know is that the early reformers actually hoped to separate somewhat from the miraculous because the miraculous was one of the elements that the Catholic Church used to bring credibility to themselves. 
They stated, well, we have all of these miracles that have happened in our history. That means that God has credited us as the one true church. And so the reformers, by nature, despised that, that, that claim and hoped to disprove that claim by proving that the miraculous have ceased in that way. And I want to submit to you that in a similar light today, with the battle between modern denominations, many Reformed denominations would say the same thing about their charismatic denominational brothers. They will say that, well, we don't believe in the gifts because how could it be that God would authenticate them, who we don't agree with theologically on everything, by working through them in spiritual gifts and the miraculous. The popular theologian John MacArthur even said, are we supposed to believe that God is authenticating them? But what we must realize is that even within scripture, as we like to do in this teaching, we see that, yes, God authenticated certain churches, movements, if you will, whatever you want to call it, that weren't perfect. Neither theologically nor morally. The church of Corinth had deeply entrenched sins that Paul addressed in his letter to the Corinthians. One of them, he says in 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. The church of Corinthians were in deep sins. But yet, this is the very church that Paul writes to extensively regarding spiritual gifts. And he actually corrects them regarding improper use of spiritual gifts as well. So, we see both immorality, sexual immorality, as well as improper use of spiritual gifts. But that does not stop God from using this church. Because ultimately, none of us are theologically perfect. We all have much to learn. And ultimately, God desires to move through people and touch others, even through imperfect vessels, because he is more interested in changing someone's life sometimes than who he does it through. I'm sure that you can say that there's been some people who God has moved through, even to touch your life, that you would have never expected. However, Jesus does warn us about lawlessness in the midst of those who practice spiritual gifts. When he speaks and says, there will be a day in Matthew 7, 22, will, who many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy, do we not cast out demons or many mighty works in your name? And he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Some will be committing lawlessness, but also be doing these works, thinking these works authenticate them as being in in perfect relationship with God, which does not. Spiritual gifts do not play a sole role of authenticating us as having a perfect relationship with God. It, it plays a role in authenticating the gospel message, but we can still be sinners. And that's clearly evident in the scriptures we are reading, even if we don't like this fact. We see that Paul writes and explains why this is. 
And he says in the book of Romans eleven twenty nine, the callings and gifts of God are irrevocable. I mean, if you just think about how God used Israel, despite them multi, a multitude of failings and sins and an abandonings of God's covenants and so forth and so forth. But God still has called Israel and still will 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 be face to face with Israel and is still restoring Israel. He's not abandoned Israel. And in the same way, if we have gifts in the same way, he desires to use us in them even in the midst of our failings. Peter had failings, even denying the Messiah three times, but God continued to use him in the midst of it and thereafter. We further read also in Galatians 3, 2, Paul writes and asks us, let me ask you this one thing, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or faith? It's not by our works of the law how good of a person we are that we receive the Holy Spirit because we could never be good enough for that by our own works. But it is by our faith because Christ died for us and set us free that we can receive the Holy Spirit. That means that he can work through us even as imperfect vessels. Another statement by John MacArthur is that if God isn't doing miracles through trustworthy men like R.C. Sproul, it must not be for today anymore. The people who have that miracle power would be the truest and purest and most, most faithful students of the Scripture, wouldn't they? Because those are the ones God would authenticate. But you can name the list. Well, Al Mohler's never claimed to do a miracle. R.C. Sproul's never claimed to do a miracle or receive a revelation from God. And, and yet we all know that these are the trustworthy teachers of the gospel. What we need to understand is that not all faith is equal. Even though Peter had the faith to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, even so much as realizing it first among the disciples, he still did not have absolute faith that he could walk on water with Yeshua. Instead, his faith wavered and failed him, and he started sinking. We can have faith in a certain area, or a certain gifting even, But it doesn't mean that we have the same faith in another area or gifting, especially if we have knowledge that is false or a belief that is false, that that is something we ought not to do or cannot do. How will we have faith for something we think we ought not to do or cannot do? Secondly, intellectualism is helpful and we grow closer to God by worshiping him with our mind and learning more about him in theology and so forth. However, there is more to faith than intellectualism. In fact, intellectualism, if it is not tempered and if it is not if it, if we are not careful, can cause us for, uh, to lean on our own understanding because ultimately the Bible teaches that there are things that the mind of man will not easily understand. And that is the things of the spirit. It even goes as far as to say that the carnal mind is that enmity with the Spirit of God. It does not like what the Spirit does, doesn't understand what the Spirit does easily. And that's why in Acts 2 we saw men say, why do these men seem drunk as they were speaking in tongues? We see an example of this with the disciples and the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw how the disciples were doing these great miracles, yet realized they were ordinary, unlearned men and questioned how it could be. 
and we read in Acts 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. When the lame beggar was healed by Peter and John, the, the learned Pharisees of the day could not understand it, but it was because Peter and John had been with Jesus. It was their relationship with Christ that authenticated them, that enabled them, that empowered them to do the miracle. It was not their mere knowledge. It was not their mere knowledge of the scripture or intellectualism that allowed them to do spiritual gifts. It was a relationship and faith in Christ and what Christ has told them that they are to do and are able to do through the empowerment of the Spirit. This is why we see spiritual gifts in certain great men of God and not in others. Because ultimately, all of these things need to come in line for the Spirit of God to be able to move powerfully through us. But what about abuse regarding spiritual gifts in modern times? This is certainly something that I could understand. There has been such abuse that we can actually think about spiritual gifts in light of all of that and nothing but in light of all of that. Many of us are asking, where is the authentic? Where is the real thing? And that's a good, good question to ponder. But I want to submit to you that that question in of itself is no evidence that there is no authentic, there is no real. It only means that you've only witnessed something that may not be real or may not be authentic. Like we've briefly discussed before, our experiences does not inform reality of what God wants for us. The scripture does. And ultimately, we can see someone use a good spiritual gift, but yet do so with bad fruit or bad protocol. And then we can judge the good spiritual gift and the giver of the gift based off what someone did with it. But that would not be wise. Ultimately, what we would do is we would judge it based off how God gave it and the protocols he gave it. Because we see the church of Corinth is abusing in some ways spiritual gifts. When they're speaking in tongues more than uh, multiple people at a time, we see people who are prophets prophesying with the gift of prophecy multiple at a time. And Paul comes in and says, no, you do this one at a time and let the others hear and judge the words. So we see that Paul doesn't come and say, wow, there's chaos here. Stop doing spiritual gifts. These, he doesn't say, you guys are crazy. He doesn't say this is, he says, guys, let's do this according to the heart of the Father. And that's what we ought to do, is when there is this abuse, we need to bring correction. We ought to bring, uh, 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 we have to come and say, look, this is either real or this is false. We test all things and we prove what is good. But we don't quench the spirit. We don't despise prophecies. We do not forbid speaking in tongues. All things that Paul commanded us to do, but we test. But to my continuationist friends who desire to do spiritual gifts, remember what Paul said, for example, regarding speaking in tongues. He said in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if an unbeliever enters and they see everyone speaking in tongues with no interpreter, will they not think you are out of your mind? And that is a fair assessment. Many people think that you are out of your mind. If you have gone to practice spiritual gifts 
outside of the protocol and guidances of Scripture, and they have rightfully judged. But ultimately, here's what God calls believers to do, that believe unbelievers are expected to say, oh, are you out of your mind? But believers are not expected to say, are you out of your mind? They ought to judge by the Spirit and have discernment of the Spirit to be able to judge that this is a spiritual gift that is not being done according to the protocols Paul gave, but yet this is a spiritual gift, and yet this is from God. Let's just bring order to it. That distinction is the difference between how an unbeliever and a believer ought to act. But sometimes believers in the same vein has acted like unbelievers are expected to act. Let's approach these gifts with a heart for them, with a heart that Paul had of, I speak in tongues more than all of you. I desire for this to go forth, but we also desire abuse to cease and for there to be order. I would like to now tell you about four concluding points in this series. Firstly, I want to submit to you that continuationism, the belief that the spiritual gifts are for today, is to continue the ministry of Jesus. When we look at what Jesus did and what he told his disciples to do and their disciples and their disciples did do, we see that, for example, in Luke 10, 9, he says, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. Now, we all agree, no matter where you're from, that we should be declaring to people the kingdom of God is coming near. Repent of your sins. But why have we disagreed on the method by which that is done? Jesus has done that by saying the method you do that by is by healing them and then declaring to them. Ultimately, if Jesus did that, if his disciples did that, if their disciples did that, why do we think that we should be declaring the kingdom has come near, but not to go out and heal them anymore? We should be doing these things in the same way that promised success to Jesus and his disciples, because then perhaps it will give us the same success they had in overturning pagan cities with the gospel. The second point that I'd like to bring up to you is one regarding Western influence. As a South African, I have a unique perspective on the situation. I found that in America and in the West, we trust more and more in our own technologies to replace the miraculous of God. We hope for them to do so, but they will never be able to. Ultimately, we have also trusted then, in, even in the body of Christ, in the church, at our own intellectualism. We have hoped for our intellectualism to replace the need for spiritual gifts. But when we look at the scriptures, we see that the way they did ministry was never intellectualism at the cost of a demonstration of the spirit. But these two things always went hand in hand. It is the truth of God's word, intellectualism and being wise and proclaiming wisdom and truth and understanding coupled with movings of the Holy Spirit that confirmed that truth. Third, the role that unbelief has played in cessationism. I'm not speaking down on my cessation brothers that I don't have faith or or any of that. I have made many of them that I love dearly that have have faith in Christ that is admirable and incredible and have amazing, fruitful ministries. 
However, if there is a certain aspect of the word that we do not believe in, that we believe it has ceased, then we should not be shocked if in our circles they have ceased and we do not see any good frequency of them occurring anymore. And then we go into a cycle of pointing at that reality as evidence that they are not for today anymore. But it started with an unbelief that has spanned generations because of a lack of knowledge, not because we are inadequate, not because we are or second-class Christians, not be, not of, none of that, but simply because we have inherited lies from our ancestors, just like in many other areas that God is restoring back to us. This is one area that he is restoring back as well. And I think God wants to restore this back to all my cessationist brothers to see their ministries become even more fruitful and edifying to the world. And lastly, I want to submit to you that in my many hours of study, I have come across something that I believe is a root issue regarding this theology. And this is not something, let me just say this off the bat, this is not something that affects all cessationists, uh, but it does affect some of them. And this is to do with the way that the relationship between a cessationist and God is slightly different from the relationship between some continuationists and God. And and what I simply mean by this can be well illustrated by someone like John MacArthur, a leading cessationist, who, let me play this clip to you, has said the following. I'd never had these mystical feelings of the presence of God. So I I got uh, a book on prayer by E.M. Bounds. Remember that, Phil? And it was it got worse. What is this? Then I got Tom will identify with this. Witness Lee, and I'm here. I'm a junior high kid. I'm a high school kid. I'm basically your average football player, baseball player guy who just loves the Lord and is wondering if I'm missing everything. Um, I mean, they're, they're literally they're literally dupes for this kind of thing. You take a kid who who knows his life isn't right who sees this kind of esoteric, almost transcendental kind of religious experience being portrayed before him. He has no idea what's out there. Um, He's not theologically informed. Uh, I I can just tell you from my own personal experience, I read things about people who wore holes in a wooden floor from praying for so long in the same place. I couldn't comprehend that kind of behavior. Couldn't even grasp it. And uh, fortunately, by, by the goodness of God, I was kept from that path into which a whole lot of other young people went. Mr. MacArthur unfortunately considers spending intimate time with Jesus as being something that he cannot connect with, even calls it esoteric for some reason. But there are many people who find great value in spending a lot of time on their knees, bruising their knees in prayer. In other words, their relationship with God has such substance that they are willing to be in His presence in that manner for long periods of time on end. And this is in contrast to others who who absolutely has a disdain for that even, which is very confusing to me, to just be honest with you. This can be even explained in, in in any relationship that we have in this world. You know, if there is a 
a, a woman that a man is interested in and he and he, he he would be able to get a book on this woman and he would read books upon books about this woman and he would get to to know everything that these books were to teach about her and he would get to know her intellectually as far as he ever could but then there was another man who actually knew this woman personally who who spent time with her who spoke with this woman who 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 got to know her heart deeply a manner so much more deeply than what a book could ever intellectually teach but then the first man looks at that and and wonders how could this other man know her better and the answer would then simply be because they have a relationship a true relationship is one where you speak to the other person and they speak back to you, where they speak revelation to you. When I speak to my wife, she speaks new revelation to me, not revelation. You know, when God speaks to us, this is never revelation that contradicts the scriptures or the Bible, which is our foundation. But nonetheless, he can guide us and reveal to us his purposes and callings and giftings for us or what he wants us to repent from or whatever other thing he wants our church to turn to or turn away from and so forth and so forth. The voice of God has not ceased and our relationship with him can include the voice of God today. And this is something, unfortunately, that some cessationists I feel have 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 had slip aside. And even have thought of those who consider the voice of God to be a value in a personal way as being something that is now in, uh, in competition with the scriptures itself. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Just as God spoke to Yeshua in his private prayer time when he spent hours on the mountain or when Moses was on the mountain with God and God spoke to him like face to face, so it is that God desires to speak to our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has left for us. And lastly, my earnest desire is that you would go and pray for insight regarding the things I've said. Taste this teaching itself and ask the Father to lead you into all that is true. For that is my only desire is for you to look more like Jesus by the end of this all. Father, I pray for every person who has been listening to this. I thank you for your goodness, your glory, your mercies. And I pray that you would come and bring a shift in your people to bring about what we see Augustine said. When he saw miracles happen in his day, Lord, I pray that we would see miracles happen in ours. I pray, Lord, that as he saw 70 miracles recorded in two years, I pray, Lord, that we would see multitudes of miracles recorded in our day. And Lord, I pray that we would see miracles happen as a testament to the truth that you have given us. I pray, Lord, that this teaching would go far and wide to the ends of the earth and that people would be renewed in their understanding as you deliver us from the lies that we have inherited. We thank you, Yeshua. Come soon. Thank you, Jesus. In the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. Please, if you have realized the value of this teaching, Share it far and wide. This has taken an immense amount of time and energy to put together. And I want to say a special thank you to our partners who have made that possible. Many blessings and shalom.